Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor, Matt Myers. On today's show, we are going to dive into some of our favorite what-ifs in baseball history. One small thing that if it had gone slightly differently might have changed the entire history of baseball. For first-time listeners, as we've said for the last couple months, this isn't really a StatCast show at the moment. It is very much a pandemic cast. That makes it sound way more like daunting and dark. I mean... <laughs> Well, I mean, I was also going to say, I, you know, once again, on, on today's episode, we're going to kind of go back and talk about our favorite this or that. Uh, we're not, you know, we're not looking past the fact that there's all like rumors and news about like what might happen for the upcoming season, because trust me, I would love nothing more than to talk about the upcoming season. Uh, it just seems sort of uninteresting until there's like actually an agreement. Like the second that happens, I imagine we will stop doing this uh, and start diving into that. But, you know, everything changes so much by the minute. This seems uh, a, a little more fun to me. So we are going to start with a piece that I wrote on the site. Um, I, I had a lot of fun doing this piece, especially diving into like old clips from the sporting news and the St. Louis newspapers. What had happened in 1941 was the St. Louis Browns. I know everyone is super familiar with the St. Louis Browns. They were a struggling team. They had been for many, many years. They were a bad baseball team on the field. They were struggling off the field, and they had agreed at the end of 1941 to go to Los Angeles to beat the Dodgers and the Giants to California by 15 years. They had everything in place. They had a minor league ballpark ready to use at Wrigley Field, the California Wrigley Field, obviously, which would later be the first home of the Angels. They had hammered out a schedule with the uh, airlines and the trains, because obviously the transportation aspect of this in 1942 would have been a big deal. They had a uh, funding promises from the California uh, based co-founder of bank of America. Even the Cardinals ownership had offered them money to simply get the hell out of town. <laughs> it was going to be great. Now here's the problem. They had done this and they had scheduled a vote at the winter meetings. And they had even set up a press conference in downtown LA to announce themselves as moving to Los Angeles for the 1942 season before the NFL was there, before the NBA was there, obviously before the NHL was there. The date that they'd scheduled the press conference for, December 8th, 1941. I would argue, Matt, that this, in retrospect, was the most poorly timed press conference in the history of the world. Obviously, they didn't know why at the time. Uh, but looking back, December 8th, 1941. Imagine... So, what happened? It's uh it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. So, December 8th, 1941, that was when they were going to move to California. The night before, Brown's ownership what uh went to Chicago because they were going to the winter meetings. They went to a Bears game. The Bears beat the Cardinals 34 to 24, and as they were at the game, everybody found out, I believe they actually announced this over the PA system at the game, that Pearl Harbor had been attacked. America was at war. Pretty clearly, it was not a great time to move a team all the way to the West Coast, especially with air travel about to be restricted. So they went back on it. They said, no, forget it. We're not going to do this. They actually held the vote. Everybody, including the Browns, voted against it. The Browns stayed in St. Louis for another dozen mostly unforgettable years. Uh, excuse me, forgettable years, although they did play the Cardinals in the 1944 World Series somehow. They moved to Baltimore, and they are the Orioles to this day. So here's my 
what if what if that didn't happen what if like one tiny thing had changed what if we didn't go to war what if they had made this announcement six months earlier you know or a year earlier or some amount of time where going to uh, war would not have you know negated this whole thing what does baseball look like then because now you've got the browns in los angeles do the dodgers still move there in 1958 you no know, does do, do they stand alone in california for 15 years until the giants moved to san francisco i argue no so I kind of went in pretty deep in this this piece here, and I really encourage you to read it on the website because it was a lot of fun. I'm not going to recite the whole thing, but let me hit a couple of the high points. I argue, first of all, that the Browns are now, in our alternate reality, one of the like crown jewels of baseball. You think about Yankees, Cubs, Red Sox, Browns. <laughs> Imagine that. Because they were in LA, they'd have the market uh, entirely to themselves. Now, if this had happened, the Dodgers probably wouldn't have moved there because they would have not they wouldn't want to have, have left New York just to be, you know, the second fiddle in another town. I argue that the Dodgers would have moved to Dallas because uh the O'Malley family already owned the minor league Fort Worth Cats. So think about that. Vin Scully, hero of Texas. You could play this out to say, well, if the Dodgers don't drag the Giants to California, which is what they did, the Giants moved to Minnesota, which is where they very nearly did in the first place. Willie Mays, Minnesota hero. You can play that out. Um, there would have had to have been another team in California pretty soon, and it would have had to have been an American League team. It wasn't going to be the Yankees, and it wasn't going to be the Red Sox, and it wasn't going to be the Indians. I'm going with Philadelphia A's. You can see where this goes. I like. I played this entire thing out. Uh, it was super fun. The, the upshot of this is at the end of all this, baseball looks sort of similar to today, but not very much. Like, for example... Our present day AL Central, at least in the way I worded this out, the four teams you would expect, the White Sox, Indians, Tigers, and Royals, and also the Atlanta Senators, because... Ooh, intrigue. Yeah, I know. There's there's a lot happening here. I think my favorite new division is the American League West. The AL East actually looks almost exactly the same as it does today. The AL West, Houston Astros, Los Angeles Browns, San Diego Padres, but a different San Diego Padres, like an expansion San Diego Padres after the first team moved to Washington, D.C., which they almost actually did, the San Francisco A's and the Seattle Pilots. Uh, I know that like all of this is insane and there's a million different things that might have happened, but also just think about how much had to have happened to make baseball look the way it does right now. And my favorite quote from all this was in 1957, in reality, when the news came out that the Giants and Dodgers moved west, the former owner of the St. Louis Browns, Donald Barnes, was quoted in the Sporting News as saying, What's so wonderful about that? The National League is running 16 years behind schedule. If you'll recall, we missed by just one day of putting American League ball, the St. Louis Browns, in L.A. for the opening of the 1942 season. Can you even conceive how different baseball would look if that had happened? Um, well, I, I, I now can because you've got to get it all out for me. Um um, well, though, what I got me thinking about, it's interesting to think of like the, the Browns as like the crown jewel team because they were the first on the West Coast that said like nowadays we often hear like, you know, I've often heard theorize that like the Mariners struggle because they have like a much harder travel schedule than any other team, which is true. And I think that is a factor that that's sometimes why they might be a team that underperforms, um, their like under, you know, their, their talent level. Imagine being the only team on the West Coast before like charter jets or like yeah. reliable yeah. airline travel. You think that might have affected um, their performance? Then again, they probably would have had a greater home field advantage because everyone else would have had to like had a, a grueling road trip just to uh, 
just to just to get to them. But it's it's a really fun thing to uh, to think about, especially the the Atlanta the Atlanta Senators. It's crazy to think about the Braves now because they played in the NL West for so long, and Atlanta is actually farther west than like Pittsburgh and Detroit. But because Georgia is on the coast, because of the way like the United States, you know, like kind of like curves. People people think of it very East Coast, but like Atlanta is actually you know like longitudinally longitudinal latitude is actually like way farther west. So they probably like they actually make sense in the center in the central as a central team. But um, that's kind of neither here nor there. But it does make it does make sense when you look at the uh, your 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 hypothetical realignment. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe they go out there, and even if America is not involved in the war, the world is still at war, and maybe they fail. You know, maybe they're there for three years and they pack up and then move to Baltimore or somewhere else. Um, as I was doing research for this piece, I came across this delightful bit of audio. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question and I know the answer is already no. Do you know who Skip Batten is? No. No, of course not. Why would you? Skip Batten uh, was an American musician. He was a member of the Birds, the Flying Burrito Brothers, you know, all these like 60s and 70s folk rock bands. And I didn't realize this until very recently. For reasons I cannot understand, Skip Batten wrote an entire song about the St. Louis Browns. He did this in 1972, long after the Browns had moved. I'm not going to play the whole song, uh, but I have a snippet of it, and it's so delightful that I, I insist we all listen to it. Check it out. All right, first of all, that song kind of rules. I don't even like folk rock that much. And also, gratuitous R- rules is dig. one word for it. <laughs> <laughs> gratuitous Mets dig. They lost more than the Mets could ever dream. By the way, this is three years after the Miracle Mets. <laughs> they just won the World Series. Uh, that's, that's something. <laughs> that made me happy. <laughs> I kind of want to play like the whole four minutes and 45 seconds or whatever, but I won't subject you uh, to all that. So anyway, Matt and I, kind of in the spirit of that, we came up with a bunch of our favorite other what ifs. Sort of our unofficial ground rules here is that they kind of had to be from different sort of categories. Like I could have done 15 other. Well, what if this team moved there? What if the Boston Braves moved to Orlando, et cetera, et cetera. That's not fun. Uh, so we switched it up and I'm going to go first. And my first what if is one of the more, I guess, infamous uh, moments in 21st century baseball. What if Grady Little had taken Pedro Martinez out of the Aaron Boone game in 2003. To reset the scene for anybody who forgot how this went, this was the seventh game of the ALCS Red Sox-Yankees. Pedro got through seven innings on 100 pitches. Uh, the Red Sox were up 4-2, but in that seventh inning, he'd allowed two singles and a home run. David Ortiz then home run, homers to make it 5-2. Now, we go to the eighth inning. Pedro has said in subsequent interviews he really expected to stay in only to face Nick Johnson, and he did. He got him, and he got a pop-out. But then Derek Jeter doubled. Now we're up to 110 pitches. And now Bernie Williams singles. Now it's 5-3. And here comes Grady Little. Everybody on earth 
thinks he's going to lift him because in the bullpen, he's got lefty Alan Embry, righty Mike Timlin. He leaves Pedro in the game. This is everybody knows this. And what happens? Hideki Matsui doubles. Jorge Posada doubles. Now it's a 5-5 tie. Embry and Timlin end up getting out of it. But eventually Aaron Boone hits that walk-off home run. What if he had lifted Pedro? I think, you know, you'll never know if they would have saved that game. But I, you know, I like to think that they might have. Like the 2003 Red Sox bullpen was really bad. I was living there at the time. I actually worked uh, at Nesson that entire season. So I got to watch a lot of it up close. It was the third highest bullpen ERA in baseball, but that's like a full season thing. Remember, they'd started with the closer by committee that never worked and they made a bunch of moves in season. And I remember to this day, a running joke on WEEI, which was the sports radio station for the Red Sox at the time. People would call in and they would say nothing but Timlin in the eighth, Williamson in the ninth, Timlin in the eighth, Williamson in the ninth. That's actually what had happened in each of the three previous ALCS wins. It didn't happen. And what if it had happened? What if they had gotten out of it and made it to the World Series? Do they beat the Marlins? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe they do. Maybe the curse ends one season sooner. Maybe they don't, though. And maybe because of that, they keep Grady Little. So you don't have Terry Francona the next year, because remember, Grady Little got let go 11 days later. You go into 2004. Let's say they lost the World Series. They still have Grady Little. Do you win without Francona? I don't know. And then you can play that out even further. Little ended up going to manage the Dodgers for two seasons. What if Grady Little had lifted Pedro? It's the right move in retrospect, but what if that meant the Red Sox still don't have a ring? What do you think? It's kind of wild. Well, there's a couple things that are wild. Looking at the sequence again of like all these, like (laughs) of him leaving him in, it is like unfathomable that he did not bring in the lefty to face Matsui. Like, that is, like, unfathomable. And looking back at the sequence of events, I'll say that as point number one. I remember watching the game. I remember watching the game in real time. My memory of that game is I actually had my wisdom teeth taken out that day, so I was watching it in kind of a daze. Um, but I remember being, like, like incredulous watching at the time and now seeing it that they had a lefty warmed up and they still let him face Matsui. Anyway, second part is, like, also imagine the Red Sox, like, you know, get over the hump of beating the Yankees in this dramatic game, which would have been, I mean, it would have been a huge deal if they had beaten the Yankees in the ALCS that year. And imagine they go and lose to the the Marlins. How anticlimactic would it have been if they had gone and lost to the Marlins in the World Series after finally getting... Which is totally impossible, because the Marlins beat the Yankees. So that's like kind of funny to think of it on its own, right? And then, of course, 2004 takes on far less, no matter what happens, 2004 takes on far less significance. You know, the... the, um, the 3-0 comeback probably never happens or, you know, who you never know, but it's just like, it changed. Like that is like the turning point basically in, um, you know, maybe modern baseball history from a narrative perspective of like that 4 series. Now like the Yankees, you know, the Red Sox went on to win four, four world series in the next 15 years um, and became kind of the dominant team um, in that rivalry for, for a period. So it's just, it's pretty crazy to think about. Um and it's actually a good segue to my first what if. Um, when, and to be clear, people, we, Mick and I came up with these totally independently. And as it turned out, there are actually a lot of parallels between the ones um, uh, that we um, we each came up with. Um, my what if is, what if Alex Rodriguez got traded to Boston in the offseason following the 2003 ALCS? Because young listeners may not remember, this almost happened in... January of um, 2004, before that season began, the Red Sox had a deal lined up to acquire Alex Rodriguez from the Rangers. Um, the deal was in place. 
but the players association players association vetoed the deal because Alex Rodriguez was going to give up a large part of his salary or defer a significant way, way more than usual part of his salary. And the players union was like, no, we don't want to, we don't want to set a precedent of players doing this. Um, and it, it squashed the, squashed the deal in parallel to that, the hero from 2003, Aaron Boone for the Yankees hurt his knee playing pickup basketball, opening up a hole at third base for the Yankees. So in many ways, you could, the other one could be like, what if Aaron Boone didn't hurt his knee? There's a couple of different ways you go with this. It's the only reason the Yankees were even in position to consider trading for a rod. Remember, then a shortstop to make him their third baseman was because Aaron Boone got hurt and subsequently a trade with the Red Sox fell through because it got vetoed by the union, which is like, does that ever, I don't know. I can't think of another instance of that ever happening. Um, can you? I'm almost sure that it has happened, but I cannot think of it off the top of my head. That's right. And to, to me, what the, my favorite part of that, this what if, which to, makes it to me, in my opinion, I picked it, the greatest what if in baseball history is that we actually have a very good sense of what would have else would have happened if a got traded to Boston because Theo Epstein, then the general manager of the um, Red Sox, has said that they had like another series of moves lined up um, after this. Um, and this is what he said. He said this, um, he said some version of this uh, a couple of years ago on Mark Feinstein's Executive uh, Access podcast. And he also, I found the exact quote today in an old story by... Um, uh, by Nick, Nick Afaro, actually. actually. Um, and this is what Theo said. Um, we had a deal with Texas for A-Rod, and, we made a deal with the White, and then we made a deal with the White Sox. Nomar for Maglio Ordonez and Brandon McCarthy, who at the time was a minor leaguer and a big prospect. It was contingent on us completing the A-Rod deal. It was probably Manny and a minor league pitcher. If it was John Lester, it would have been a disaster. So let's back this up a second. What we almost had a situation was the Red Sox getting, and this is 2003, mind you, when like, you know, a-Rod, Maglio, Nomar, and Manny were like four of the biggest names in the game, all involved in a series of transactions where the Red Sox get Alex Rodriguez, Maglio Ordonez, and Brendan McCarthy. The White Sox get Nomar, Nomar Garcia Parra and John Lester. And the Rangers get Manny Ramirez. <laughs> I mean, just it's it's almost hard to contemplate where baseball 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 goes from there. Did the Red Sox end their drought in 2004? It certainly, you know, it certainly doesn't play out the same way. Did the White Sox end their drought in 2005? <laughs> I mean, how much different does A-Rod's legacy look if he is allowed to accept a trade to go to a winner and take less money in the process, you know, playing himself as like the unselfish guy. And then instead of going to be Derek Jeter's like co-pilot, he becomes Derek Jeter's direct rival in the division in Boston. And he gets to stay at shorts up and finish his career in Fenway Park. I mean, I don't even know where to begin. Well, I think the first place I would start with is so A-Rod obviously at the time was an incredibly great player, right? If he ends up on the 2004 Red Sox, he would have been an improvement, I think, over Nomar Garcia-Para. But what if that, even though if he was better, what if that just makes the dominoes land in a different way and they don't end up winning that year? Like, it's certainly possible. The other thing was, this was such a big deal that I'm pretty sure there was like a whole, I think ESPN did a whole like 30 for 30 on this, right? Or at least a, a short version of it. And what happened was, you know, the deal fell through, you know, Boone got hurt, like you said. And A-Rod ended up sitting next to or near Brian Cashman at a baseball awards dinner. And they started chatting and Cashman came away from it with the idea that, oh, he might be willing to play third base. Like We're not going to move Jeter. You know, maybe we should or shouldn't. They weren't going to do it. And he's like, well, wait a minute. If he's willing to play third base, this might actually be something we can talk about here. And obviously, you know, they needed a third baseman. And then it happened. And the other part of this that I've always really thought was hilarious 
Um, I don't think you said this, so sorry if I'm repeating. When the Yankees and Rangers made this deal, Texas bypassed Robinson Cano to take Joaquin Arias. Like, play us out. Which is, yeah, that is also that is also a wild part of this. Um, so, I mean, that, that I mean, uh, possibly as much as the St. Louis Browns, this, this A-Rod getting traded to the Red Sox changes ba- current, like the last 15 years of baseball in ways we cannot, we not, we cannot contemplate because if this series of deals all went through, it's just like, it's a, it is a completely whole different world. Um, after all, I mean, the Red Sox were sort of like, you know, it ended up being like, Hey, that the, the Nomar trade in the summer of 2004 was considered sort of like a jumping off point. They got Cabrera, Orlando Cabrera, they improved their defense. Um, not to mention the fact that like when Orlando Cabrera left, they used that comp pick to get like Jacoby Ellsbury and it set off this other chain of events <laughs> right. that led to like Mookie Bet. It's just like, it's, um, it's wild. <laughs> we are really like full on into the chaos theory here. <laughs> so I love this. What if, uh, you know, more than, more than any, more than any other uh, in a, uh, in recent in recent history what do you what do you have what's your what's your next what if mike well i definitely knew i wanted to pick like a what if a high draft pick had gone in a different way but i needed to keep it somewhat realistic you know it, it can't just be with the benefit of hindsight like oh why wasn't mike piazza the first overall pick instead of a 60 second rounder or what whatever he ended up being so i went with what if in 2008 the tampa bay rays had picked buster posey number one overall instead of tim beckham buster posey was picked number five it was a very high draft pick by the giants but looking back on the uh, comments at the time, it really seemed like the Rays had whittled the, the list of candidates down to Beckham and Posey. And Posey was, you know, a local hero. He went to school uh Florida State. And they went with Beckham. And that didn't work out so well. Beckham didn't get to the big leagues until a cup of coffee in 2013. He didn't get up for good until 2015. In 791 plate appearances for the Rays, he had a 299 on base percentage. Uh, he had that like rando great six week stretch for the Orioles in 2017. Last year he played for the Mariners. He hit okay. His defense was atrocious, and he's currently about halfway through an 80 game PED suspension. Not what you want. 11 years after, uh, almost 12 years after a first overall pick. Meanwhile, I don't think I need to tell anybody here how great Buster Posey is. He is to me a no doubt Hall of Famer. I believe. Sorry, Yachty Truthers. Buster Posey is the best catcher of the 21st century. And if you look at it. So I looked at his first like six full years because let's be honest here. I don't know that the Rays were going to give him a big long-term contract. So I looked at this 2010 to 2015 over that time. He was the fourth most valuable player in baseball, 37 wins above replacement Rays catchers in that time, 10 wins above replacement. That's a big deal. So you could play this out and say, okay, they get a better player. Also, they get a, a Florida guy, you know, he's probably like a huge superstar, but also the Rays in those years, were very, very good. So if you think about it in 2010, and this is when he first came up to the big leagues, um, you know, remember he's a big part of these three Giants World Series. The Rays that year won the division. They were a 96 and 66. They lost the ALDS 3-2. The next year in 2011, 91 wins, lost the ALDS 3-1. The next year, 2012, 90 wins, five games out. The next year, 2013, 92 wins, five games out. Remember, he's like a consistent six to seven win player in those years. It's possible that we're looking at like four straight division titles for the Rays if you go from pretty below average catching to outstanding catching, uh, not to mention a superhero locally. And then think about this. Probably they trade him at some point, right? Like, isn't it very Rays in 2014 or so uh, before giving him a big long term deal? Like, you know, we've seen this with David Price uh, and others. 
they trade him away and who knows what they get from that. And instead, Tim Beckham, pretty much a bust. Yeah, it's what's what what's what's kind of wild about the Rays is that for all their success, um especially early in their existence when they were picking at the top of the draft, like year in and year out, they actually whiffed a lot on their top picks. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like if you, so let's start. Okay, let's start in nineteen ninety nine, they had the number one overall pick. Um, Josh Hamilton was kind of a bust for the Rays for a variety of reasons, but like the Rays didn't get anything out of him, right? Like they ended up like he ended up being out of baseball because of addiction problems, ended up getting taken in the Rule Five draft, um, and resurrecting his career on the Reds and then the Rangers. Um, so there's Hamilton kind of a bust. Baldelli was pretty good, but then had like you know injury problems. But then you have a run like Dewan Brazelton, third overall, negative career war. Uh, Delman Young didn't pan out, although they did use him in trade to get Matt Garza, so it kind of worked out. Jeff Neiman. Well, let's skip over BJ Upton there. He was pretty good. Upton, but Upton, yes, Upton. I was, I was actually focusing on the on the busts, but yes, fine. Upton was was pretty good. You know, he ended up being, feeling like a bit of a disappointment. But as far as like sure. you know, draft picks, like they got, you know, he definitely was like you know gave them their quote unquote money's worth. You have Jeff Neiman, number fourth overall, didn't pan out. Wayne Townsend didn't even make the majors. Okay, and then Longorian Price, they hit, but then you go back to Tim Beckham, um, where it was like a complete whiff. And then you have a, the flip side of that, of course, is the Giants, right? Who basically had a run of you know, within like six years, just like totally nailing their first round picks and parlaying that into three, you know, uh, Lincecum, Bumgartner, Posey. I think Matt Cain was a first round pick. So it was just like, you know, the the the, the, the sort of uh, the yin and yang right there where the Rays have did this amazing job of building to the draft, but it wasn't in the first round for the most part. A lot of it was just like finding, getting quantity and just finding and finding value. That's actually continued. I'm looking at this list of Rays all-time first round picks. And if you go back since 2009, I can't even count these offhand, but it looks like, you know, 20 to 25 first round picks. Blake Snell has been very good. That's it. The only other guy, aside from Blake Snell, who has made it to one win above replacement is Ryan Stanek, who, you know, is a fun story as an opener. But, you know, Mikey Matek never did anything. You know, Tyler, Tyler Guerrero, eh, Brandon McKay still might. I get, you know, some of these more recent guys still have plenty of time. Uh, Josh Sale, you know, Drew Vettelson. You're right. Like for a team that seems like it should really be relying on these great draft picks, at least at the top, they have swung and missed aside from Snell for like a solid decade now. Do you know which free agent that that left? Get, they got the comp pick for, that they used to take Snell. Um, I don't. I'm going to say Aubrey Huff. Uh, you're kind of close in terms of class of player. It's Brad Hop. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> who played who played with them for like a minute, and I guess yeah. they gave him like a they gave him offered him arbitration. I don't know, I don't know what the rules were at the time. I guess it was the, the previous where they just offered him arbitration, and he he rejected it and signed elsewhere. So they got a comp pick, and that's what they used to take Blake Snell, which is um, which is uh, which is pretty wild. Um, that's a fun one, and my next one is also a draft one. Yeah, can I say is, I've I've never heard this story before, so I'm I'm excited to get into this. Um, it is admittedly a bit more fanciful, and generally when I like my what ifs, I usually like them more based in some sort of reality where it was like, oh, this was on the table. That's part of why I like the the A Rod what if so much because it was like something that was like well thought out and had numerous parties involved. This, you know, like when you're like, oh, what if Jeremy Jami had slid and the Jeter flip play never became a thing? Like that's like a spur of the moment. Like I I don't find those as interesting as like. The ones where it's like, okay, this was really, this took a lot of people to happen and it was going to happen and then it didn't for whatever reason, like the St. Louis Browns thing. Um, so my next one is what if the Diamondbacks had drafted Mike Trout? And yeah, I know draft ones can seem a little kind of wild, but like 
there's some merit to this. Um, last year, uh, Anthony Castrovens did like a kind of a deep dive podcast where he looked at a bunch of the top players from the 2009 draft, which is like a, you know, a, a star-studded draft that included Strasburg at the top and Mike Trout and then also Arenado and uh, J.D. Martinez and Paul Goldschmidt. And they were all like, he kind of focused on one person, you know, they were in different parts of the draft all the way from number one pick down to like the, the 20th round, J.D. Martinez. Um, and in the Mike Trout episode, there's a story from the Diamondbacks that basically the Diamondbacks were one of the other teams that was definitely known to be really in on Trout because they had the 16th and 17th pick of the draft that year, they had a comp pick um, from when Orlando Hudson had signed elsewhere. Um, so it's just like the, the Angels had 24 and 25, which they used on Trout and Randall Gritchick, um, or is it 23 and 24, something like that. Um, the D-backs at, um, the D-backs at 16 and 17. And basically, um, according to, according to Castorin, who also kind of wrote a piece about this, um, scouting director Tom Allison's plan was to go with a high upside high school player with one of those two picks and a more seasoned college player with the other. He had received enthusiastic reports on Trout from scouts Sean Barton and Matt Marullo. Arizona also had a pro scout named Joe Boringer who had attended um, Millville, New Jersey Senior High School, which is where Trout went to school. Allison also went so far as to confer with Trout's rep, Craig Landis, about what kind of signing opponents it would take to get Trout at number 16 or 17. Allison had seen Trout once and really liked him. Um, so he was like kind of in on the idea of, 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 of uh of going to see Mike, of, of, of drafting Mike Trout. And then it's a spring day. He's in Philadelphia. He's about to get a connecting flight to New York. He's gonna, his plan is to go see a young left-handed pitcher out on Long Island by the name of Stephen Matz. Um, but he got word from his area scout on Long Island that Matz's game was going to be rained out. So, you know, scouts, you know, in April and May, they have to make use of their time. If there's an opportunity to see a player, they're going to see a player. So on a whim, Allison said, well, Mike Trout has a game today. I can rent a car and go see him again and get a second look at Trout. Lo and behold, Trout had a bad game. And Allison, in his head, says all the things you hear about, like, Northeast players, the biases start to creep in. Oh, he hasn't played good competition. Oh, you know, his dad kind of flamed. His dad was a prospect. He kind of flamed out. I'm a little not, I'm not really sold on this kid anymore. And so as a result of seeing Trout that second time because of a rainout on Long Island, they moved Mike Trout um, down their draft board. Um, they ended up going, using the strategy that we referred to before. They drafted a high school player named Bobby Bochering at number 16, who never made the majors, and A.J. Pollock at number 17, who obviously ended up being a very good major leaguer. Uh, they also got Paul Goldschmidt uh, in the eighth round of that year. So what if the Diamondbacks and not the Angels um, – had taken uh, Mike Trout. And you have a core of Mike Trout and Paul Goldschmidt from like 2012 on in the NL West. Because as, we, as, we, as we've seen, the biggest thing the Angels have failed to do is find complementary players to surround Trout. Well, if there's one thing the Diamondbacks do well, it's find complementary players. And I think the whole landscape of the um, American League West, I mean, the National League West, and, well, and the American League West for that matter, probably, changes drastically. I mean, Trout debuted in 2012 and probably should have won the AL MVP award, losing out to Miguel Cabrera, who won the Triple Crown that year. The Giants in the NL West won the World, their second of three World Series in 2012, and then again in 2014. What if, you know, Mike Trout is suddenly inserted into the middle of the NL NL West race? Um, Since Trout debuted, the Diamondbacks have won 81, 81, 64, 79, 69, 93, 82, and 85 games. Um, they're probably a playoff team. At least they, they made the playoffs once in that span. They're probably a playoff team 
three or four times in that span. Um, if not more, depending on what other moves they make to surround, you know, suddenly having the best player in baseball on their team. Um, additionally, you know, Mike Trout has now won three MVPs. Um, he probably has two more. In 2012 and 2013 in the National League, he probably wins. You know, Mikel Cabrera was in the American League. The MVPs that year were Buster Posey and Andrew McCutcheon, who were like, good but not like otherworldly mvps or have that kind of like narrative of um miguel cabrera had behind him so there's it's 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 fun to think about i mean how different baseball is if mike trout happens to get drafted by another team we know plenty of other teams had a chance had a chance to take him Mm, i i like this but i think my hot take here is going to be it doesn't matter and i say that i say that with some sadness because i love mike trout he's fantastic but as you alluded to, the Angels never make the playoffs, right? Like even Mike Trout, arguably the greatest player of all time, has not been able to drag that team to the playoffs. And I think you could argue, like I was just talking about, you know, with the Rays and, and Posey, if you're like three, four, five games out of first place and you add a eight, nine, ten win player, sure. But the Diamondbacks have been pretty mediocre for a number of years. So in, in 2011, they won the division. He wouldn't have impacted that. I think he came up like very late that year. Here is how many games out they finished in the years after that. 13, 11, 30, 13, 22, and 11. Now you could argue for some of those seasons where they finished 11 games out, maybe if they had Trout, their projections would have been stronger. They might have gone out and acquired better pitching, and that's a couple extra wins here and there. Obviously, there's a million things that could happen, but as much as I love Mike Trout, he's not turning around a 30-game deficit. <laughs> you know, He's not turning around a 22-game deficit. I think he would have been really you know still the same fantastic player i don't think he'd be a diamondback right now maybe he'd be playing for the phillies which is probably where he wanted to be in the first place this is fun to think about i think it's obviously terrible news for the angels if this happens although if they're not that close maybe they don't sign albert pujols which hasn't really worked out for them so that's like a whole other can of worms this is a fun one to think about i love the story i'm not sure it actually changes the balance of power in the nl west I will say, I do think that that's, that's a fair point. I do think, though, it, it does probably mean that Mike Trout, has, if he's in the NL, has three more MVP awards. Um, I think he almost certainly wins in 2012 and 2013. In 2018, when Yelich won in the National League and Trout bested him in basically every category, um, I think that um, Trout would have won. So I think you'd be looking at Trout with currently sitting at six MVPs at the age of... I think he actually, the one year he wouldn't have won in the NL was 2015. I think Harper still would have won that year with that crazy year that Bryce Harper had. But you'd be looking at Mike Trout entering his age 28 season with um, six MVPs under his belt, which is crazy to think about. Um, that on its own makes it the whole thing worth merit, to be honest. <laughs> one other draft one I thought of, like just before we came on air, that I kind of wish I, I'm going to stick it in here as like a bonus, a bonus draft. Um, what if? Um, is what if the... Um, what if Brady Aiken had taken the Astros offer in 2014? Um, because if you recall, Brady Aiken was the number one overall pick. And they had, I guess they verbally agreed to a deal around, you know, $6 million. Um, the Astros took him. And then the Astros didn't like something in the medical. And they said, okay, we're going to give you like a, a take it or leave it offer of like three point something million, which is like, I think in order to able to use the slot, if the player doesn't sign, you actually have to offer them at least like 50% of the slot value or something like that. Or you'll use the money elsewhere. You have to offer them at least um, 50% of the slot up. So they basically offered him like whatever the minimum was they could to still kind of get the, the value of the slot. And that that hurt some of their lower picks. <laughs> yes. Um, but like what ended up happening, of course, was it turned out like 
the, the Astros were probably right. Um, Aiken ended up going to like IMG Academy. He ended up being a late first round pick the next year by the Indians. He ended up signing for 2.5 million. So he ended up getting a lower bonus a year later. Um, he's never panned out in the minors. Um, and is, I think he might be out of baseball now. But the crazy part about that one is the, the next year, they got the comp pick, the number two overall pick. The Astros got a comp pick, the number two overall pick the next year, which they use on Alex Bregman. And of course, Bregman, great player. He comes in. The Astros, you know, everything's different about the Astros if Brady Aiken um, accepts that accepts that offer. Um, but anyway, your next one is also is also uh, related to related to the draft, is it not? Uh, it is. It's related to a, uh, I guess, almost the very first draft. Uh, Tom Seaver. I knew that there had been some funkiness with Tom Seaver's contract. I didn't really know the ramifications of it until I started digging into this. My what if? What if Tom Seaver's contract with the Atlanta Braves hadn't been invalidated. Tom Seaver had been a star at USC. He was drafted by the Dodgers in the 10th round of the very first draft in 1965. He did not sign with them. He goes back to school. At the time, it's important to remember that for many years, there were two drafts. There was a June draft and then also a January draft for players who didn't get signed in the first part. So he gets drafted by the Braves in the first round of the January draft. 20th overall, signs with the Braves February 24th, 1966. All set and done. However, at the time, draft rules prohibited a player from signing a pro deal after his college or high school team's season had begun. USC had played two preseason games. Seaver did not pitch in either one of them, although he did pitch in an exhibition against a team made up of U.S. Marines. The Braves had thought, reportedly, that only the regular season games mattered. So his contract was nullified on March 6th of that year by Commissioner Spike Eckert. He couldn't go to the pros, but he also couldn't go back to USC because he'd signed a pro contract. So his eligibility was up in there, a whole mess, as you can imagine. Tom Seaver's dad was reportedly going to sue Major League Baseball. What happened, and I'm pulling this from a 1967 issue of Sports Illustrated, Commissioner Eckert finally ruled that any club but the Braves that was willing to pick up the $50,000 bonus tab could put in a claim for Seaver. The Phillies, Indians, and Mets stepped forward, and as Tom listened via long-distance telephone, New York's name was picked out of a hat. A hat! Tom Seaver is one of the best, what, 15 or 20 pitchers ever? Something like that? A hat, A, and B, three teams for 50 grand. I know it was 1967. Where was everybody else on this? For Tom Seaver, my God. So my what if is pretty clear. What if that didn't happen? What if he was allowed to stay with the Braves? Now, in reality, he comes up at the 1967 Mets and he wins Rookie of the Year. Wins the Psy in 1969, 73, 75, is traded to the Reds, is a Hall of Famer. Obviously, the Mets got to the World Series in 1969 with him and won. They got back there in 73 and lost. He tormented the Braves over the years. 419 out of third innings, 228 ERA, 600 OPS against. He actually faced the Braves in the first ever NLCS in 1969. He didn't pitch that well. Five earned runs in seven innings in game one, uh, but the Mets won anyway. So what if he was actually on the Braves? First of all, this kills the Mets, right? Like the Mets of the 60s and 70s without Tom Seaver are not winning the World Series. I mean, in 69, they still win by eight games in the East. And he had a seven win season, so fine, maybe. But in 1973, they won what had to have been the worst division ever. They won the NL East by by one game over the Cardinals. They were 82 and 79. Tom Seaver put up a 10 win season. And they won by one game. I'm comfortable in saying, even though war doesn't necessarily work this way, in this case, it does. <laughs> uh, but the thing about the Braves is they had been very good dating back to the days of Milwaukee. Uh, when they moved to Atlanta in 66, they had Hank Aaron, 
Joe Torre, Phil Necro, Rico Cardi, all these uh, really good players. They had a winning record every year from 1953 to 1966, and then they also won 93 games in 1969. But after that, they didn't finish higher than third until 1982. Those mid-70s Braves were kind of bad, so he improves them. Sure, does he bring titles to Atlanta? I don't know. What I do know is that murders the Mets. That I am 100% certain. <laughs> Um, that is, uh, that, that, that's for sure. You, you mentioned this as the worst division ever. This is actually sort of a, <clears throat> another, another, what if I like to think about is that, um, the actual worst division ever was the AL West in 1994, the first year of the three division alignment, where when the strike hit, the Rangers were in first place with a 52 and 62 record. Um, and while no one wishes, obviously we all wish the strike had not happened and the world series in 1994 had happened. I do wonder how, if in the how the perception of the three division alignment would have changed if in the first year of the new alignment, um, a team won a division being ten games under, you know, roughly ten games under five hundred, and if that would have like spurred a larger change to how the playoffs are done. That's neither here nor there. The Tom Seaver thing is insanity, and I think it's kind of one of those things that like, I, I you know, I grew up a huge Mets fan. I didn't hear the story till like two years ago, and I was sort of shocked really? that it's like a bigger part of like baseball lore um because it's kind of crazy as you said the fifty thousand. it'd be like fifty thousand. it's like if only like you know when um when uh otani came in like only like uh you know two teams were willing to to, to go in on the uh, <laughs> go in on like the uh the, the, the bidding or whatever the, however it works now but um it uh that's certainly or what if he ended up on the indians you know <laughs> Or right. <laughs> or, or he's with like, you know, the Phillies. I mean, the, the fact that, you know, where were the Dodgers? Where were literally every single team on this? Imagine peak Steve Carlton and peak Tom Seaver in the same rotation in the mid 70s. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. and what, what hat? That's what I know. I want to know what kind of a hat it was. Was it just like a, a man's business hat? Did it have a baseball hat? Like, these are the details I require. Um, my final, uh, what if, um, also, not connected, but is it relates to um, the the Mets and the Reds. As a matter of fact, the two teams most connected to Tom Seaver, um, which is what if Ken Griffey had accepted that trade to the Mets? Um, as some listeners might remember, um, after the nineteen ninety nine season, um, Griffey was still with the Mariners, but he had one year left on his deal, and he basically said, "I'm not signing a long term. I'm not signing extension now, and I'll accept a trade to two teams, um, the Mets." And um, I think he, he had 10 and five rights. He said the Mets and the, um, which means 10 and five rights means that 10, 10 years in the league, five years with one team, you can veto any trades. They couldn't just trade him anywhere. He basically said, I'll accept a trade to the Mets because um, to be on the East Coast or the Reds, which is where I'm from. Um, supposedly he wanted to be, you know, he wanted to be training in Florida, which is where he lived. And that was sort of part of like at the time the Reds trade. Anyway, um, so the Mariners and Mets, had agreed on a trade that December. Um, the deal was basically structured as um, the Mets the, the Mets were going to get Griffey and they were going to send Octavio Dotel, then an elite pitching prospect, um, Roger Cedeno, who had just stolen 60-something bases and was considered kind of a dynamic young talent, and Armando Benitez, who in 1999 was maybe the best reliever in baseball. If not, he was on the short list. Um, and Griffey, as he tells it, he's told, it, he's told the story since, basically says that like, called him one night and like, Hey, let us know midnight tonight. We got to decide on this. And he was just like, you're telling me I've got like, you know, an hour to decide on this. No, I, I'm not going to, I can't, I need time to think about this. Like I'm vetoing the trade. Um, but you know, 
what if Griffey ends up on the Mets? Because we know what happened after the fact, which is the Mets went and took a similar package um, and they traded it to get Mike Hampton. They actually got Derek Bell in the trade as well. They got, uh, they sent Roger Cedeno and Octavio Dotel and someone named Kyle Kessel to the Astros for um, Hampton and Bell. And then Griffey went and got traded to the uh, Reds for Mike Cameron being the key piece, Brett Tomko, Antonio Perez, and uh, Jake Meyer, who I don't think ever made the majors. So we know how history went after that, all right? But let's say the trade goes through. Um, if the Mets get Criffey, they probably don't make the World Series in 2000. Um, Hampton and Benitez were both really good for them that year. Benitez, again, like, he sort of is famous for, for kind of blowing games, but he was an elite reliever for about five years, including 2000. Um, and in the 2000 NLCS against the Cardinals, Mike Hampton threw 16 scoreless innings, including a complete game in the clincher, a complete game in the clincher. Um more importantly, the Mets don't get David Wright because they used the comp pick they got when Mike Hampton signed with the Rockies to draft David Wright. Um, the Mariners don't get Mike Cameron, who was a crucial part of their 2001 team. He actually got a 5.9 war that season, which is higher than any season Griffey had after he left um, Seattle. And then what about Ichiro? How does this affect like what happens to the Mariners going forward as they still make this big play for Ichiro? It's... There's a lot that could happen there. Michael Clare actually gamed this out a bit more for a piece recently on MLB.com, and he even got really wild with it. He proposed that instead of waiting, so because he said that basically the following year, the big trade the following season was that the D-backs acquired uh, Kurt Schilling. In his alternate universe, the D-backs see that like Mike Hampton sitting out there because he was also a year free agency, see him as a bargain, and trade for Schilling. That means the D-backs never get Schilling. And then he proposed that Schilling never goes to D-back, but instead St. Louis, because at the time there were reports that the Cardinals had offered Matt Morris and wait for it, J.D. Drew to the Phillies <laughs> to get Kurt Schilling. So this actually imagines a world in when J.D. Drew, who famously did not sign with the Phillies as a draft pick in 1997, I think, had become like a huge villain in Philadelphia, ends up in Philadelphia after all. However you want to slice it, there are all sorts of ways that this goes, but Griffey at the time, who was the biggest star in baseball, almost got traded to New York and he vetoed the trade. It could have got it's 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 kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, while you were talking, I was looking up a little bit about this, and Anthony DeComo, our Mets beat reporter, ha- had written about this about four years ago. And I guess it was uh, during a, a Cooperstown event where Griffey and Mike Piazza were were together and they started talking about this. And Griffey gave a little more details about how quick the decision was for him to uh, make this decision. He said, they gave me only 15 minutes. They said, we need an answer. It was 1145 at night. We need an answer by 12 because we're going to dinner. <laughs> That's what they said. And he's like, all right, you made it easy for me. I'm not going to wake my wife up and call everybody and make a life decision in 15 minutes. Thanks, but no thanks. That was Griffey's quote. Um, it is really fun to think about Griffey and Mike Piazza in the same lineup. And yet it really does feel like a bullet dodged for both teams. Like Griffey had one more good year. Obviously, you don't know. Maybe he stays healthier. Who knows, right? But he went to Cincinnati and that next year at age 30, you know, he's really good. You know, hit 40 home runs that first year and he had, uh, you know, five and a half wins above replacement. And then for the next rest of his career, really, he had one like bounce back year at age 35, but otherwise he was hurt. He wasn't that good. I think we forget how good Mike Cameron actually ended up being. You know, he bounced around uh, for a bunch of teams, but he was with Seattle for the next one, two, three, four years. Uh, and he was really good. You know, he's an outstanding defender, had some power. He was probably a better fit 
for that team over the next couple of years than Griffey would have been. And so as much fun as it would have been to see Griffey in New York, for all the reasons you said, I think the Mets were better off. I think the Mariners were better off. This is one that is probably better off just never having happened unless you unless you see it differently. Yeah, I mean, I think what ended up happening was sort of contingent on Griffey getting an extension and the Reds gave him an extension. And at the time, you could see why that was a popular move in Cincinnati. His dad had been on the Big Red Machine. He was a local kid. It made all sorts of sense. The Reds, remember, in 99, had lost game 163 to the Mets. So they were seen as like a team on the upswing. And when they made the trade, they were actually weren't giving up anyone who'd been like a big part of the 99 team. So it was like, oh, like we just missed the playoffs by a game basically. And we just had a Griffey at his peak. And then of course, like, you know, it didn't really pan out that well for the, for the, for the Reds afterwards because Griffey, as it turned out, you know, had one more superstar level season in him. Um, but uh, who knows what, what, uh, what might have happened otherwise, but it's a, it's a fun one to think about um, because of just how close it came to, to actually happening. Yeah. It, it's just the idea of Griffey, and Piazza on the same lineup in that town, in our town, uh, on that team in that year would have been a blast. And I just, I don't think it would have worked out well. And obviously you'd much rather have had the whole uh, career of David Ray. Hey, that was really fun. Thanks for listening. Uh, that is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. We'll do another show in a couple of days. Thanks. Thanks.